0: Hi! <laughs> Was that suave and smooth or what? Yeah, if you're visiting today, that's how we roll, okay? I just want you to know that. We're super slick. Um, it's good to be together. I, um, I'm looking forward to tonight, to tonight, and I'm hoping that you really can make it. Uh, if you were thinking of not coming to the congregational meeting, just uh, want to ask you to reconsider. It's going to be a beautiful time to rejoice, to praise God for how he's leading us and what he's doing, and, and also to explore uh, what could be ahead in terms of being a good steward with the campus that he's given us here. So um, if, you, if you can make it, we, we look, really look forward to, to seeing you at that time. Uh, today we're going to be, uh, I was going to talk a little bit about some of our values as a church. They're really important and I'm grateful for them, but in light of time, I think I'm going to just move very quickly, and we'll talk about this another day. So just ignore everything that's happening. I've already been really smooth thus far, so <laughs> this is just adding to my smoothness, okay, great. Um, we, our values, we have spent a lot of work on that over the past many months, and, and uh, I do want to highlight those from time to time. But, but today, uh, we find ourselves continuing in the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we do so, we're, we're continuing our exploration of the spiritual gifts. And I just want you to know, as one of your pastors... This topic, this issue, is not just an intellectual exercise to me, okay? I'm not just talking to you about this right now because we want to, you know, have all of our theological T's crossed and I's dotted. Uh, This isn't academic uh, or or theoretical. This has everything to do with how each of us lives our daily life in Jesus. Uh, Without clarity and understanding the spiritual gifts that God's given, all of His children— Uh, we're going to live stunted and distracted spiritual lives. Why is that? Well, that's because when someone comes to Christ, they receive a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts, and God gives them to us in order to serve God, build up his body, the church, and to reach the dying world around us. And so God's gifts are his supernatural enablements to carry out the mission he's given us. And if we don't, grasp them. If we don't see them clearly, if we uh, don't hold on to them and use them in the way that he's given us to use them, we actually end up neglecting them and ignoring them. And essentially what that means is we start to try to accomplish and do all these things on our own power. The task of serving God, building up his body, the church, and reaching the dying world in the name of Jesus is way too big a task for us to try to attempt it on our own power. And the enemy would certainly love to see us try, though. But God's given us these amazing gifts. The Lord's entrusted us with these gifts to use them in a way that causes us to live and to work and to move through our daily lives as brothers and sisters in Jesus in a way that's far beyond our own ability far beyond our own ability to fulfill a calling that's greater than all of us. And so we need to understand the spiritual gifts. And so what I'd like to do is, is uh, kind of back off a bit. It's almost like you're at, you have Google Earth. You know when you're on Google Earth and you kind of back off and like, okay, that's the neighborhood of the house. All right, that's the city. Okay, country, continent. Then pretty much you're seeing it from space, right? You're looking at this thing. You're just kind of zooming out. I'd like to do that this morning with the spiritual gifts so that we can get a better understanding of the flow of the spiritual gifts through the scriptures. And um, and, and in order to do that, it'll give us a better way to kind of frame our discussion. Now, Now, today, essentially, there are kind of two main camps when it comes to spiritual gifts within the family of God, okay? There's some that would call themselves continuationists, which would say that all the gifts Uh, listed there in the New Testament are all in play today in the exact same way or similarly to the way they were in the the first century church or in the early church. Uh, There's another side. The other side of that coin would be the cessationist group. And that would be the group that believes that certain gifts were given to the early church for specific divinely ordained reasons to meet specific needs at that time. So again, there's a spectrum here, all right? So you've got continuationist, the idea of continuing, right? So they would say they're all going on in play. Cessationist, all right? They they would believe that some were for a specific uh, time frame. And there's in between people that hold to different levels of each of those things, and they play out in different ways. And we we don't have time to go into all the the nuanced understanding of all that. Uh, Frankly, I'm not crazy about the terms. I think I may have mentioned this to you before. This is a debate that has been going on since longer than I've been alive, No one asked me for the terms. No one asked me, Chris, what do you think of the term cessationist? I feel like it's sort of like, eh, it communicates things, you know, I I don't know. Uh, But but we're going to use those terms in order to have a productive discussion about those things and then uh, try to discern where the Bible would place us on, on that spectrum. And uh, and let's face it, this is not a tier one issue. If you're visiting with us today, we refer a lot to sort of uh, this idea of theological triage. You know, tier one issues would be issues whereby if you don't hold to them, you're essentially not a believer. So the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, uh, the authority of the scriptures, uh, those different things. If you don't hold those things, essentially you're not a Christian. But then there are things like tier two issues. You know, the, the mode of baptism, um, and in this case, spiritual gifts—that's that's a tier two issue. In other words, it's not a salvation issue, and yet it's a significant issue. It's an important issue. Uh, tier three issues—we would say, for example, the study of end times—that's probably a tier three issue, right? It's not going to, um, you know, affect us in the same way that a tier two issue might in, in, in our current, um, you know, state of things, but. All that to say, this is a tier two issue, usually. Now, sometimes there are some on the continuationist side of things who would say something along the lines of, you're not really a believer, or you're not truly a spiritual believer unless you speak in tongues, let's say. Okay, once they get that extreme, that's touching now on a tier one issue, right? Because that's affecting now the nature of understanding how someone's a believer and the quality of their faith, etc. cetera. So it can, it can vary, it can border on some of those things. Um, And as I said, we don't have time this morning to dive into all the different issues, Um, but but we've started 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I encourage you to open to that if you would. And and last week, we we saw as as Paul moves into this to address uh, the Corinthian church, he's been dealing in the entire book with false criteria for true spirituality. You'll recall from earlier on, I'm following Apollos, I'm following Cephas, I'm following this teacher, and that makes me really spiritual, and Paul's like... That has nothing to do with anything. The main thing is Christ, the gospel, and what foundation is that teacher building on? And, and, and that's the main thing, not, not that. And then others later on were saying, well, you know, if they're married and they're saying, you know, if I could just be single, then I could be really spiritual. Maybe you know that feeling if you're married. Maybe you, today you're thinking, yeah, I really could be, right? I mean, that, that happens, right? So they're saying, I would be really spiritual if I was single. And then many of the single people in the, in the church in are saying, you know, I could be really spiritual if only I was married, And others were saying, I could be really spiritual if my my job or employment was different and other things. And so Paul says, that's not the issue. The issue is to remain in the state in which you were called because none of those things matter. What matters is walking with God. That's what matters. And now Paul comes to this new section where apparently the Corinthian church was saying, you're really spiritual if you speak in tongues. And so Paul's going to take chapters 12 through 14 to deal with that issue and also to deal with spiritual gifts. And as we noted last week, what a tragedy. God gave these gifts to the church for the purpose of building up the church and furthering the work of the gospel as it spreads. God gave those gifts to the church in order to be a blessing and to be an encouragement. And instead, what's happening now because of arrogance and pride and divisiveness, those very things now being used to actually splinter the church apart. And so Paul addresses that. And last week we saw that that all believers or all those who receive Christ by faith receive spiritual gifts from God. And then we went on to see how as recipients of spiritual gifts from God, we must, first of all, learn to discern. We need to also remember who the gifts are from. And we also need to remember what the gifts are for. And so in a nutshell, last week as in this section, we needed to, So we need to learn to discern. He, he says in verse one, I don't want you to be unaware. And then he gives them a test, a test whereby they can tell if someone's exhibiting these gifts, whether or not they are actually from God or not. And then in verses four through six and in verse 11, we need to remember who the gifts are from, namely they're from God. And not only that, they're from, uh, we we saw that they are, in fact, from the triune God. We, We saw that the Lord Jesus is referenced. The Spirit is referenced. God the Father is referenced. And there's a variety of gifts. They all come from the same God. In other words, Paul's saying, why are you dividing over this? The source of your gifts, it's not divided. Why are you divided in the use of the gifts, essentially? And then, lastly, we were told to remember what the gifts are for. And verse 7 tells us very clearly. Look at what it says there. What's it for? To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's what it's for, the common good, the good of the body as a whole. And the call for discernment that Paul gives then, as we said last week, is the same call that we have today. We need discernment today. And so, again, we're gonna frame the, the, the issue of spiritual gifts. We're gonna zoom out to that panoramic view and, and I just want to tell you this before we even embark upon uh, this next step. Uh, my commitment each week as I prepare to preach is, is to seek the meaning of the passage I'm in. In other words, I might have views in different areas of theology or church practice, but I really, really try to just leave those at the door as much as I can as I embark upon my study. Uh, and I... I really did another, I might, I might have learned something in the past or I might have other things that I hold to, but when I come to the passage, I go, Lord, I don't, pl- I, I pray this, Lord, please just, whatever things I have in view, let me ask the questions to find from this passage what it's saying. Because I don't want to assume my theology is together because frankly, folks, it's not. I know that it isn't and I need to grow and I need to learn. Um, So something else at the outset, full disclosure, after my preparation for our time today, which by the way, extended way beyond this past week, okay, this has been several weeks, I have found the text here and through chapters 12 through 14, uh, really driving me toward a cessationist understanding of the spiritual gifts. However, I want you to know that there's a spectrum there too. So there are other cessationists that I would disagree with on several things. And I want to also thank God that he's given many gifts that, that are in full effect today. And I also want to give thanks to God that some were intended for the, for the church at its foundational moments of being established. And, I, and again, please know I did not come to this leaning or this view because I grew up Baptist. By the way, I didn't, okay? Uh, or because I claim to, you know, those who claim to speak in tongues are not from my tribe, so to speak, uh, those aren't good reasons to accept or reject any view of scripture. Um, no I've come to this understanding because as best as I can tell this is what the Holy Spirit himself has said about his spiritual gift in his spiritual gifts in his scriptures. And who better qualified to define the purpose and character of spiritual gifts than him? And so as we kind of give an overview of this topic through various passages of, of scripture uh, really, there's, there's those three threads that we d- talked about last week that we find at the outset of chapter 12 actually run through the entire New Testament. There's one God from whom all the gifts come. There are differing varieties of gifts in a beautiful way. As we mentioned last week, God's an artist, and he sits there, and he looks at a person, he goes, takes the brush, and he's like, bam, bam, eh, some of this, bam, bam, right? So there's different colors. There's different emphases. There's amazing variety. And all of it is for the common good. And so, uh, as we frame our discussion today, it's helpful to place some categories uh, in front of us to kind of try to sort the gifts out. And so, essentially, uh, I've got four categories that we'll be using to describe the spiritual gifts. One would be the revelatory gifts. Uh, The other would be the sign gifts. The third category would be speaking gifts. And then the final, fourth category would be supporting gifts. And so uh, I'm not sure how far we're going to get today, but the Lord obviously wants us in this for several weeks, so <laughs> we're going to be talking about these things as much as he would have us talk about them to unpack that. So uh, first, we'll begin today with uh, the first revelatory gift, would be, which would be the gift of apostle. And if we look at the gift of apostle, we find that there are really three qualifications for someone to be an apostle. First would be that they were a witness of Jesus' earthly ministry. We find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Secondly, they were also a personal witness of the resurrection of Jesus. We find that in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2. And then lastly, we find that they also had a direct appointment to the office of apostle by Jesus himself. We find that in Luke chapter 6, Acts chapter 9, and 1 Corinthians 15. These Men spoke as Christ's representatives on Christ's behalf to his newly formed church. And that apostolic authority was unique. God used them to bring divine revelation. And we'll talk about that more a little later. But some have concluded that there were only 12 or maybe 13 if you add Paul in there or add the guy who was chosen in the beginning of Acts, right? Um, But... It seems like the New Testament used the term apostle in its technical sense, uh, applying it to a larger group. Uh, For example, uh, it appears that Galatians applies the title to Barnabas and James, the brother of the Lord. And uh, we also find Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps applying it to a guy named Andronicus and Junius and others. And so it would appear that uh, there was more than just the 12, there were several. That had this apostolic office gift, uh, and they were exercising it in the early church. Um, there's an interesting thing that happens in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul is saying, Hey, watch out for apostolic imposters. He's warning them against that. And of course, why would he need to warn them if it was just the 12, right? You can just say, Hey, you one of the 12? No, get out of here, right? That would be it. But. Paul's giving that warning because there were false apostles. And so whether there were, how many there were, we don't, we don't exactly know, but they, they possessed the highest authority in the first century church because they were Christ's immediate representatives. And their influence extended to the entire body of Christ as a whole, rather than being ministering in one location, and this gift, because it had revelatory gifts associated with it, that means they were recipients of divine revelation and they were responsible to transmit that to other Christians. And, and so they're... Uh When Paul is writing Scripture, he understands that it's from the Lord. As a matter of fact, you find Peter in his writings referring to the Apostle Paul's writings. And he says, you know, the unstable, they twist and distort those writings of Paul as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Whoa. So Peter's equating Paul's writings with Scripture. Now, does that mean, by the way, that these apostles were infallible? Absolutely not. We find in the beginning of Galatians that apparently, you know, Peter became confused about, you know, being with Gentiles versus being with those, those of, 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 of Israel. And so he's, you know, kind of struggling between that. So they're not infallible, but we would say when they gave revelation from God, without question, it was infallible. It doesn't mean that everything they said was infallible. It doesn't mean that their life was filled with infallibility. It means when God used them in that way, that's what it was. Now, how did you know that you were an apostle? Well, I gave those criteria, the three criteria earlier. But it's also clear from the scriptures that the criteria for having those credentials included uh, demonstrations of that by, by signs and miracles and wonders. And so we find this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, where Paul is defending his apostleship. And look at what it says. He's saying, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, let's face it. If someone's coming along saying he's a false apostle, and the option wasn't there to say, are you one of the 12 or not? Right? Because there were more than that. Okay. Well, if he fulfilled the other criteria given, the demonstration of that would be by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul's being attacked, by the way, in Corinth. They're saying, yeah, he's not really an apostle. Eh. And Paul's saying, no, when I was there, you saw for yourself. You saw that verifying sign of signs and wonders and miracles. And so there's no reason Paul's saying to the Corinthians that you should see me as inferior. I'm the real deal, and I proved it by giving you those signs of a true apostle in signs, wonders, and miracles. And... Uh, And so we find that this is something that we would also see primarily connected with the office of apostle. Um, Because if you think of it this way, if it wasn't primarily connected with the office of apostle, then how would signs and wonders and miracles prove that Paul was an apostle? (laughs) How would that be? Uh, We also find this affirmed in the book of Acts chapter five. Notice what it says in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, notice, by the hands of the apostles, and then they also gave a location. It was in Solomon's portico. And in some ways, it's being written there to say, hey, folks, remember, it was right over there at Solomon's portico. Remember that? You saw it. And so this would indicate that signs, miracles, and wonders were the telltale sign of an apostle, And were the convincing proof for those in the early church that what this person claimed about being an apostle was, in fact, true? And uh, so as as a follow-up consideration, and really as a key question for today, many ask, and and there's much more that could be said on this, but are there still apostles today? Now, I will grant, there are a couple times in the New Testament where the term apostle is not being used in its technical sense. It's being used as a messenger. I'll grant that. But um, it really does seem this gift was available in light of the criteria given, those three criteria of having seen the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, having witnessed his resurrection personally, having been appointed by him to be an apostle. It would seem that those qualifications were, were available and, and were given as long as as. as It was possible to fulfill those things as long as eyewitnesses to jesus's life and resurrection were still alive but today that qualification cannot be met and so are there still apostles in that sense today the answer is no but thankfully we have their eyewitness account preserved for us in the scriptures and by the way we're told in the scriptures by peter one of the apostles and he says hey You would do well to pay attention to this as a lamp in a dark place. And then, you know what he does? He compares it to his time on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, hey, I was up there. I heard the voice of God from heaven. I saw Jesus and his glory personally. And yet, he says, much better. We have now the scriptures. And so I I think it's important that we hold on to that. And then we also remember this, the Holy Spirit hasn't just given us his word in the scriptures. He also gives us illumination, not revelation. Revelation is new knowledge given by God. We'll talk about that in a moment. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit in the heart of each individual believer turns the lights on, so to speak, so we can see it. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit is giving us an understanding of what he is saying not only generally, but specifically to us. As we prayerfully seek to know God through his word, the spirit brings things to life off the page that apply specifically to our life, to our context, to our moment, to our struggle, to our joys, wherever we're at. So we see not only his work through salvation history here, and not only his truth for all believers through salvation history, but also truth and application directly from the Spirit of God, from his word for our personal walk with him. The the next gift that we come to under the heading of revelatory gifts would be the gift of prophet. And prophets shared with the apostles the honor of receiving and sharing direct revelation from God. The Bible tells us they had insights into the mysteries of God. Uh, In in Ephesians chapter 3, for example, uh, Paul is describing um, this very thing. You know, what's the the, the theme of the book of Ephesians? Well, some have said, you know, it's it's bodybuilding. (laughs) Essentially, it's the church of Jesus Christ being built up, the building of the body, And you'll notice what what Paul says here. He He says, by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he's talking about a mystery, something not known yet. Then he goes on, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed. That's a key word underlined by me to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And he goes on later to tell us specifically what that mystery is. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, fellow partakers in the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. That was earth-shattering news. The reality is it's earth-shattering for most of us in this room, because frankly, if that wasn't true, we wouldn't be here. It's a stunning thing. But my point in bringing this up here is to say, notice what he says. The revelation was made known to him, that there is a revealing of a mystery to him. And notice what it says at the end. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. That's revelation from God. Now, not everyone who had the gift of prophecy was also an apostle. It does seem like all the apostles also had the gift of prophecy, but it didn't always work in the reverse. Uh, But we do find that though there's a distinction between apostle and prophet, they did share this sense of revealing truth, revelation. And uh, we would also see maybe a difference between apostles and prophets in that most of the time, apostles seem to minister to the church at large, whereas prophets typically were a part of a local assembly. And the prophet's job was to build up the body of Christ by exhorting and comforting brothers and sisters in Christ by divine revelation given to them by God. Men and women both served as prophets. We find that Philip had four daughters who prophesied. We found a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, we were studying and there was prophecy that women would would, would give in the assembly. But that was the prophet's job. Now, here's the thing. How did someone know if someone was a legitimate prophet? Well, you might recall in the Old Testament, the pattern was this. There would be a near event foretold. And if the foretelling came true, then the foretelling of God's word was then considered reliable. And what's fascinating is we've had that same pattern to be evident in the New Testament as well. Um, As an example, go ahead. And if we look at the book of Acts, chapter 11, Verses 27 to 28. We're introduced to a prophet named Agabus. And here's what it says Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over the world, all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Isn't that interesting? Why is he mentioning that? Well, he's saying Agabus came down and he demonstrated the fact that he was a prophet of God by declaring before the fact that there would be this great famine. And guess what? It took place. Remember during Claudius' reign? That's when it happened. This guy foretold that. So his predictive accuracy was a part of the validation of his prophetic ministry. Happened in the Old Testament was true in the New Testament as well. Now, today, and and by the way, this is on that continuum. These are people that I love and respect. They're brothers and sisters in Jesus. They have a different view of this, okay? They would see that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy, where Old Testament prophecy was infallible. They would argue today that New Testament prophecy is fallible and at times mixed with error. And you might ask the question, well, why on earth would they say that? Well, I do think they're trying to be honest with what they're seeing in the text. Um, Those to hold this view would look to another part of Acts with actually the same prophet, Agabus. And it appears that Agabus, this true prophet, we've just seen he's a true prophet, now prophesies an error. And we find that in Acts 21, uh, verses 10 and 11. And this is what it says. And this is Luke conveying what's happening as he's traveling with Paul. And he said, As we were staying for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus makes this prophecy. And yet... As we read the account further, we find several things. First, we're not told that the Jews bound Paul or that they handed, only that they, that they, or that they handed him over to the Romans. So those, those two things are not in the account afterwards. Secondly, we see that some of the Jews, in fact, did stir up a crowd against Paul as he was in the temple. They seized him. They carried him outside the temple gates, and they were essentially beating him in the hopes of killing him. And then something amazing happens. The commander of the local Roman battalion heard about the kind of uprising, insurrection, riot kind of thing, and he comes in to bring peace and to calm the disturbance. You can kind of see, you know, thankfulness for, you know, thank you for Pax Romana. Okay, good, you know, peace, that's great. That's a good thing. And so he comes in, and, and essentially he takes Paul from the hands of the Jews. So we might see it this way. The Jews didn't him, Paul over to the Romans instead the Romans rescued Paul from the Jews so Agabus must have gotten this wrong his prophecy wasn't accurate I mean he did great with the famine one he was good on that but this one's kind of a mixture of truth and error it's kind of a a a mix and yet Agabus was not rejected as a false prophet was he? those are all great questions and observations, but let's take a look at this more closely. Uh, The first uh, observation, what was Paul bound and delivered over? Well, the account tells us in verse 30 that they took hold of Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. That's what it says. It doesn't say that his hands and feet were bound, nor does it say that his hands or feet were unbound. And though the idea of being dragged uh, is very, not appealing. It would probably be easier to drag someone if they were bound. So being bound and the description of being dragged may well assume that he was bound. Was he delivered over to the Gentiles? Well, yes, he actually was. Did the Jewish individual leaders in that scenario consciously do this? Was that so, their sole intent? Did the Jewish leaders say, we're now gonna deliver Paul to the Romans? No. No. But let's face it. How often are human plans, intentions, and goals subverted and used by God to accomplish his divine will? We see that in Genesis, right? Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So the truth is, whether they knew it or not, these Jewish leaders did, in fact, deliver Paul into the hands of the Gentiles. They did. Whether they meant to or not. And if you think I'm stretching it a bit with that last point, let's allow the Apostle Paul himself to weigh in on this. Because he recounts this exact situation later, after he arrived in Rome, in Acts 28 17. And you know what he says? And I quote Paul says it this way in Acts 28. He was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Paul uses the exact same term Agabus used in his prophecy. And so Paul didn't disagree with Agabus' prophecy. He was there. It happened to him, and he saw the event in the same way. But this really shouldn't surprise us. On further examination, we see Agabus' prophecy did come true. It was fulfilled, specifically, accurately. And, and, And that really shouldn't surprise us also, because if we look at the way he communicates that prophecy, he does a lot of things that harken back to the Old Testament prophets, doesn't he? I mean, he takes Paul's belt and he ties up his own hands and feet. He's using his own physical posture and placement To describe what's going to happen to Paul. There was a time when the Old Testament prophet Isaiah walked about naked to symbolize the coming judgment on Egypt and Cush. That's in Isaiah 20. There was a time when the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah wore a linen undergarment to symbolize how Judah and Jerusalem should cling to the Lord. And instead, that garment ended up being hidden by the river and ruined, symbolizing Israel's distant, ruined relationship with Yahweh. Ezekiel, the prophet of the Old Testament, he built a miniature siege works against Jerusalem to symbolize and to predict Babylon's coming siege of Jerusalem. So all these are ways in which Old Testament prophets communicated, and certainly they would indicate an equivalence between what those prophets did and what Agabus is now doing as well. Agabus's, Agabus's prophecy and the way he communicates really shows a continuity between him and the Old Testament prophets. Uh, another key thing in, in this, and we don't have time to go into any further, but the way, the, actually the words Agabus uses when he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says, that is very much, even some of the terms, exactly the same terms that are used uh, with prophets in the Old Testament as well. So prophecy in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament included both foretelling of future events and foretelling the word of God. The prediction happened and the proclamation happened and the validity of the prediction gave credibility to the prophet to make proclamation. Revelation from God fully inerrant and fully authoritative. So it if prophecy has both of those elements and is 100% accurate at all times, we need to ask another question. What do we make of what's practiced today as prophecy in, in many of our, our modern charismatic circles? And again, I say this as a friend and as a brother, not as someone who is trying to condemn or, or put anyone down. But I think we need to say, with all due respect, if we're being honest with the scriptural information, it's not the same gift. It doesn't fulfill the same criteria. Um, it doesn't, it, again, a lot of the times we, what you would see in, in most of those circles would be, and they, and they themselves will claim, no, it's not, it's not authoritative and it's not 100% accurate. And, and, and I think what we would say, or what I would say in, in response in love would be, well, to the extent that it's not, then it's not what the Bible describes as prophecy. I don't wanna take what the Bible describes as this gift and, and degrade it some way just to fit modern-day phenomena. And, and it's important that we understand that. Um, but is that a reason to, to approach our next question? Is it conclusive? Because the next question would be, is the, the gift of prophecy active into the church today in the same way? And, and just because the contemporary equivalents doesn't match what we see described in the Bible, that would not be the sole reason to state that it isn't. But I do think we would need to look at a passage that would describe the nature of prophecy and and, and its function in the early church. And I think we find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 22. Again, Paul's describing the building of the body, bodybuilding. And what does he say here? He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Beautiful passage. There's so much here, but notice what he's saying, that this thing, the church, this called-out grouping of Gentiles and Jews together in the body of Christ, it's built on something. The foundation of the apostles and prophets uh, literally there, uh, the way the Greek unfolds, it could be read, the foundation, which is the apostles and the prophets. That's the foundation. And then he goes on, Christ being the cornerstone. Now, there's so much to this that that we would see visually because this, this is a description of a foundation. And, and, and some have suggested, oh yeah, he's talking about uh, the prophets of the Old Testament there. Well, actually, if you go into the next chapter Chapter 3, verse 5, he very clearly states that these revelations that have been given has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So it's new mystery, not revealed before, being revealed now to the apostles and prophets. So it can't be that. No, certainly he's talking about prophets of the New Testament. They are the foundation with the apostles. And so if you look at that analogy, several things become clear. One, the apostles and prophets form a foundation for the universal church. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. So you can kind of picture that. There's this foundation, apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Jesus himself. The Ephesian believers, they are part of the building that's being built on that foundation. And the concept given here is that the foundation is basic, but also that the foundation is first. Right? It's not continuously being constructed. Could you imagine hiring a contractor? And he's like, into your project week one. I got the foundation late. Wait, great, great. Okay, next week comes. What are you doing? Yeah, I'm building foundation, man. I'm building foundation. Seriously? Yeah. Two months go by. You walk out. It's three stories of foundation. They're getting fired. They're losing their license. Okay, that's not what a foundation is. That's not how it works. And then the same was true in the first century. So in the same way, there is no need for other cornerstones. Again, look at this passage. Very clear. Apostles and prophets, the foundation, Jesus, the cornerstone. In the same way, there is no need for other cornerstones or need for other messiahs. There's also no need for other foundations or apostles and later prophets. Because Christ finished his work and the church still benefits from it as the cornerstone And in a similar way, the apostles and prophets have also done their work as the foundation and the church still benefits from it as well. And so as prophets are a part of the foundation along with the apostles, we would see that this gift was practiced at the founding of the church for the purpose of building the church. And it's no longer in practice in the same way today. Now, I want to make something very clear, because even as I'm conveying this idea of of, of cessationism, there is a very narrow, extreme form of cessationism. So, if we're on this spectrum, there is a form of... I forgot which side I put what on. Let's just say I put cessation over here. I don't know, all right? So, way over there at the end, there is a form that is so narrow in the way the gifts are are experienced, And, and so... There, there is kind of a teach me but don't touch me attitude that can come. In other words, don't tell me you were moved by the Spirit. I don't want to hear that. Why are you getting so emotional about it? There's, get away from that emotionalism. And it's like time out. The Bible itself tells us that the Spirit prompts us, does it not? The Bible tells us that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of sin. So if the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin, newsflash, you are going to feel convicted. That's not bad. That's good. That's a blessing. When you're comforted, we're told that the, the Holy Spirit is a comforter. When he works in your life, you are going to feel, at times, comforted by him. That's a beautiful thing. We don't want to so kind of view emotions as being this sort of evil, wicked thing or or feelings or promptings by the Holy Spirit. No, he does that. He does that. The Holy Spirit can prompt. The Holy Spirit can give impressions. If a person's in struggling and I need to encourage them. Maybe you're talking to a brother or sister and there's a sense you're going, I really do sense that you are really, really discouraged right now. Or I'm sensing that you're really lacking contentness in this moment. Can I just share with you something? That's a, the Holy Spirit can prompt those things. Sometimes those, the impressions given by the Spirit can be super accurate, like in a startling way. I mean, in the counseling room, I can tell you this has happened a lot. There are times when uh, I've been, in, actually, Janet and I sometimes will do counseling. My wife, Jen and I will do counseling together. There have been times where I'm sitting there praying, like, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's a husband and wife sitting there. And then Janet will just say something. And uh, I've seen it addressed to both the husband or the wife, either one. But I'm telling you, it is like pinpoint, accurate, boom. Almost kind of like, so you got cameras set up at our house? Like, what are you doing? What's going on? That's that's the Holy Spirit prompting. That's, That's the Holy Spirit giving an impression. That's important. That's a beautiful thing. Let's not, let's not deny all that just to hold to some sort of position that we want to cling to with all our might. At the same time, let's not degrade the spiritual gifts simply to fit modern-day phenomena. Let's hold what the Bible says about them. So I'll give you an example, and I need to close, but... Um, Let's just say a friend, a friend walks up to you and they say, hey, man, I, I've got a prophetic word for you. God is saying to you, beware of every form of greed. The Lord does not want you to cave into your desire for more at work or on your next business deal. Live content in him. And, and you would look at that and you go, wow. And, and then look, you say, yeah, that's right, man. I'm a prophet and that's a word of knowledge. I just dropped the knowledge bomb on you, buddy. Deal with it. And and I think you could say, well, you know what? I'm thankful to you as a friend for sharing that with me. And I'm certain it's from the Lord. I I don't know that it's prophecy as described in the Bible. It it Probably is exhortation maybe or something like that. And and then maybe your friend objects, no, no, it's prophecy. And and I think a good question could be, "Well, well, why do you feel the need for it to be that? Is the gift of exhortation somehow a lesser spiritual gift? And prophecy? Does not the same spirit give both? Is not the same Lord, the same God who, who gave this gift to you? And thankfully, he gave it to you with the same purpose that he gave prophecy to those who were prophets, which is the common good. And, it, and this gift of exhortation is just as given by the Holy Spirit and thus is just as supernatural as all the other gifts. Is this somehow not spectacular enough for you? I think when we start to see the gifts in light of how they're revealed in Scripture and hold to a high view of the gifts rather than bringing them down to fit contemporary occurrences, I think when we hold them up and yet we also treasure all the other gifts that we're gonna talk about in the times ahead, we learn something important. We learn to affirm and rejoice in the supernatural nature of the ordinary Christian life. And we need to do that. Because, frankly, brothers and sisters, we cannot walk the ordinary Christian life without the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit and the gifts he's given us for that purpose. But we'll continue on with this this discussion as we gather together next week. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand and see these things and, and honor you in them. We thank you for your gifts, and we thank you for your purposes and your gifts. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who differ with us on these things, that we together as your people can talk these things through, wrestle through them. And I would ask, Lord, that our heart before you would not be one of some sort of teach-me-but-don't-touch-me attitude, But that instead, Lord, we would hold to a high view of your gifts as described in your word and rejoice in your provision of our salvation in Christ and your Holy Spirit who directs, who leads, who guides, and gifts for the building up of one another in love and for the salvation of those who don't yet know you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.